Al Jazeera podcast. They sit in AC rooms and they don't realize that the heat is increasing, that people are dying. Millions of people are dying because of this. Those air-conditioned rooms are at the United Nations Climate Summit, or COP, in Dubai. Disha Ravi is there too. She's an environmental activist in India, and she's at COP with heads of state, royalty, and other activists. They greet each other, make deals, and discuss the state of the climate crisis. Negotiators from countries, observers, civil society members, the press, researchers, a bunch of other students. The summit is exclusive. And it's a question for activists whether or not being in those rooms makes a difference. Dilika Mandela, Nelson Mandela's granddaughter, believes that it's worth it to fight what she calls climate apartheid. Apartheid use economic power and privilege of a minority. And similarly, with climate change, the economic system and, and the systematic way of doing things is along those same lines. Today on The Take, as COP28 closes, we talk to activists about the successes and failures inside and outside those air-conditioned rooms. I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. This year's Global Climate Summit was eventful. Countries clashed over a proposed agreement to phase out fossil fuels at the COP28 Climate Summit in Dubai. Observers in the negotiations said Saudi Arabia and Russia were among several countries insisting the conference focus only on reducing climate pollution and not on targeting fossil fuels. Over 100 protesters gathered on the sidelines of the summit for a peaceful action in solidarity with the people of Palestine demanding a ceasefire in Gaza. Dalika Mandela was there to witness some of it. She attended COP for the first time this year, representing one of the most revered families in the global fight for social justice. Let each one of you and all of our people Give the enemies of peace and liberty no space to take us back to the dark hell of apartheid. I will always say I'm the first of the first of the first. First grandchild of Nelson Mandela from his first wife, Evelyn Mandela from his first son, Tim Gile Mandela. And I am the CEO and founder of the Tim Gile Mandela Foundation, a foundation that is centered on three pillars, health, education, and youth development. And a few things immediately stood out to her. One, it was how massive it is and how many countries are supporting it. But she was also struck by what was achieved from the very first day of the summit, the launch of the Loss and Damage Fund. Hearing no objections, it is so decided. A new loss and damage fund will help offset the long-term impact of rising sea levels and extreme weather events, such as flooding, droughts and wildfires. The genesis of the need to have such a fund is nearly three decades old. It has not just happened overnight. 
the, the loss and damage fund is designed to compensate vulnerable countries for the losses and damages for the climate change. It's a crucial lifeline for vulnerable countries. And this fund, in my view, will help in terms of the roadmap that is needed for the global south, where the most that has affected due to the fact that we don't have the funding, we don't have the expertise, the technology. So this is the fund that would assist in doing all of those things. She can envision the immediate impact this fund would have in places that are already confronting climate emergencies, including in her home country. South Africa's vulnerability to climate change is much greater than its consumption of the fossil fuels that cause it. It is the same injustice that is meted against our people. It is meted out by people, the heads, and it affects most the have-nots. So our work does align, you know, in terms of injustices, because climate change is an injustice to the global south. Because, you know, in as much as we are not the cause, it affects us the most, which is why I am very vocal against it. So I'm a chip of the old book, I can say. In South Africa, for instance, we had devastating flood in Durban, where people are still displaced to this day. Catastrophic flooding, nearly 450 people dead, some 40,000 people without homes. Authorities say it's the worst flooding in decades, and experts are linking the storms to climate change. There are people that, you know, have their homes covered with mudslides, and some of them, you know, are still displaced, are living in, in, in homeless shelters and makeshift villages. And those farms can be utilized to rebuild their home, to rebuild their lives, and also to prepare us, you know, to have better weather forecast equipment to be able to predict floods before they happen. But the fund has also received criticism for not going far enough. The main criticism is who is hosting the fund, the World Bank. Countries who will receive the fund argue it would give too much control over to donor countries. That's because the United States appoints World Bank presidents. But Dilega still sees it as a step in the right direction. Certainly, because it's the first one, you know, the first loss and damage fund, there will be some mistakes. That's inevitable. However, to mitigate those risks, let us look at what has happened before and be able to say, okay, this is what we've learned from the past of funds that have been given. How do we then mitigate that in this instance? For Disha, who you heard from at the beginning of this episode, her feelings on the fund are mixed. I was thrilled. I know that there were people, civil society groups pushing for it for years now. I know people who've been leading it. And we had an amazing person, Dr. Salim Haq, who passed away recently. And it was really sad that he wasn't there to see it. He was one of the leading voices for creation of the fund. Salim Al Haq spoke to the take in 2021 about his home country, Bangladesh, and its climate crisis, as well as our collective climate futures. The injustice is that rich people in rich countries, by and large, are the ones who cause the problem because their emissions are much higher than poorer people. 
the people who are going to be susceptible are the most vulnerable, poorest communities, people of color in rich countries. So this rich and poor divide is both rich countries versus poor countries, but also rich people versus poor people, even in rich countries. And that's a matter of injustice. He died at the end of October, soon before COP began. Disha says she's concerned that the work behind the fund will stall now that it's been passed. Even for this to just happen, it took so long. So I feel like they're just going to stop at this and applaud themselves for the work they've done instead of continuing to push. The deal relies on wealthy countries to actually give the money they've pledged to the countries that need it. Our fight is not over. We still need to fill the fund. So we will continue to demand that developed countries fill the fund and give money and make pledges that are new and not pledges that they're taking from taking away from adaptation or say mitigation. It has to be money specifically allocated for loss and damages. And it has to come in the form of grants and not in the form of loans. Meaning money that the climate vulnerable countries won't have to pay back. It can't be more debt that the Global North is giving to the Global South for a crisis that they have caused. And for her, that division between Global North and Global South is only emphasized at COP. I feel like one of the most important things that is never addressed is the urgency of the climate crisis. Because every time we talk about how the climate crisis is not a future event, it's a current event. That's something Salim al-Haq, the loss and damage advocate from Bangladesh, told us too back in 2021. The impacts that you are now seeing on television screens around the world have been happening in our part of the world for the last decade. It's not new news. This is old news. We've known it's happening. We are dealing with it. People are suffering from it now. Three years of drought have forced more than a million people from their homes in Somalia. Now their shelters are being washed away by floods after days of torrential rains. Oh my gosh, look at the harbor. Oh my gosh, goodness, look at all these houses. Devastation and heartbreak as you saw parts of historic Lahaina town destroyed as wind-whipped wildfires continue to rage. Imagine a whole lake rushing down a mountain at once, carrying ice and rocks along with it. Heavy rains have caused a Himalayan glacial lake in northeast India to burst its banks. Officials say the resulting floods claim several lives and more than 100 were missing. Like people in my country, my neighborhood, I've suffered from it already. And it's really important for them to address that and take drastic action. But I don't think that urgency is there. After the break, what led others to not just criticize COP, but skip it entirely? Welcome to Necessary Tomorrows. My name is Ursula. I am an AI. And I've inferred from your online activity that you have been feeling more dread than hope when you think about the future that is coming for us here in the 2060s. So I have created a course just for you to enhance your capacity for imagining different futures. Your class starts January 8th. Necessary Tomorrows, 
an audio series by Doha Debates and Al Jazeera. Find it where you listen to podcasts. The criticism of COP included full-on boycotts from the likes of Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg, who skipped last year's COP and didn't make an appearance in Dubai this year either. She also spoke out against the choice of the summit's chair. Sultan Ahmed al-Jabir is the CEO of the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company, a lead producer of fossil fuels. The first time a CEO has ever run this particular conference. Other activists boycotted over the presence of Israeli representatives amid Israel's war in Gaza, including Jesus Vazquez. I am the general coordinator of Organización Boricua de Agricultura Ecológica, which translates to Organization Boricua of Agroecology in Boriquen, Puerto Rico. And he's at a different conference hosted by La Via Campesina. It's an international organization of farmers. We go normally to, to all of the COPs. And this year we're not there because we cannot permit uh, ourselves to be in a space while Israel is committing genocide with more than 15,000 people killed, with journalists that have been killed, with more than 5,000 children that have been killed, with hundreds of uh, medical workers that have been killed, to be in that same space and to grant Israel the space to even talk while they're doing that. So for us, it is complete solidarity. We didn't think twice as a movement. And for him, the work for climate justice does not have to include COP. Jesus is from Puerto Rico, a place that's been hit by massive hurricanes too frequently to fully rebuild. And the work he does with La Via Campesina is happening at home. We're going to our neighbor's house in our community with a shame sauce to if we need to take some debris, some trees that fell down so that families can get out, bringing uh, tools to rebuild people's houses. We're bringing seeds and farming tools to replant. La Via Campesina's work aims to build what he calls food sovereignty, putting the production of food in the hands of the people who eat the food. For us, food sovereignty is a way to defend our ancestral legacy and defend Mother Earth. And we're saying that food and agriculture, that is the essence of life, should be in the hands of the people and not in the hands of a few multinational corporations that are just all about profit and capital. As for Disha, though she did attend COP28, she said being there isn't her main priority. I'm not thrilled to be here. It's like taking away time from a lot of things that I would rather be at. Every year I'm tempted to boycott COP, but I feel like for the boycott to actually work, there have to be like massive numbers and like massive groups and people rallying behind it. But I'm also concerned, even if it's that big, I wonder if it's only going to be civil society groups who are going to be doing that. And that makes me think, if we all boycott COP, does that mean that governments can still get to come here? Do they still get to come here? And do they still get to continue their work? 
And if governments continue to show up to COP, Disha says she feels she also needs to show up. We've always had to come to where the power is, and the power comes to COP, unfortunately. And so we've had to come here and make adjustments, learn their language, speak their language, make sure that our demands can no longer be ignored or silenced. To Dileka in South Africa, the work done at COP is important, but it can't end there. The conversation cannot stop at COP. We have got to have these conversations on a daily basis because in dialogue, we have got to have these dialogues constantly, be it on social media, be it physically. So I would say that slowly, slowly, we are winning the tide against, you know, Commitment, that is. You know, there's a saying, a journey of a thousand miles starts with one step. Climate change doesn't care who caused it, who suffers the most. It is upon us. And until such time, we put our differences aside and make sure that we come up with concrete solutions of how to reverse the tide. Because if you pit nature against humanity, nature will win every time. And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Miranda Lynn and Chloe K. Lee, with Zaina Bezer, Sonia Bagat, Faranisa Kampana, David Enders, Siriel Khalili, Ashish Madhotra, Nigin Oliayi, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Our sound designer is Alex Roldan. Alexandra Locke is The Take's executive producer, and Ney Alvarez is Al Jazeera's head of audio. We'll be back. <laughs> 